Hi, welcome back to Stuck on the 11th Floor. My name is Jad, and this is an audio supplement to my written fiction. Today I'll be reading new pieces from a second chapbook that I wrote in the middle of 2020. This one isn't published online anywhere, but I wanted to uh, release it first as an audio piece, and then later on, uh, once I'm done editing and uh, rewriting some of the sections, I'll post it online. The title of my first chapbook was called Stuck on the 11th Floor, and this one is called There's a Woman to Blame, although I'll still continue to use the title Stuck on the 11th Floor for this podcast series. In this episode, I'll be reading the first story from this collection titled What Do You Remember? I hope you enjoy. They told Samantha that she was lucky to be alive, but Samantha didn't feel so lucky. She didn't even feel alive, actually. The reason for that is complex. See, we live in a modern world with medical science at the bleeding edge. Experts can explain nearly every ailment. However, sometimes a patient exhibits an unusual string of symptoms, inexplicable ones. In which case, one lucky physician identifying such an illness as inexplicable would claim to be engaging in a novel area of medical science, the inquisition of which may yield a report that the larger medical community might find interesting, noteworthy, and perhaps publishable in a leading medical journal such as The Lancet. Dr. Aaron Emmett considered himself lucky for attending to Samantha on the night that her husband brought her in. Though worn out and uncomfortable from a 12-hour shift behind many layers of PPE, as were the rest of his colleagues in the emergency ward, Samantha's case was so compelling that he all but forgot the pinching strings behind his ears or the sweaty mask over his beard. Her case was remarkable. Horrible by all manners of humanity, but enticing to Dr. Emmett. Whether he would succeed in helping her was beside the point. His diagnosis of Samantha's rare amnesia would immortalize him in the medical canon. Months later, Sam, as she prefers to be called, sits, on Dr. Emmett's, sits in Dr. Emmett's office and submits to his neurological tests. He's spoken to her husband, Moses, about an experimental procedure that has the potential to cure her of, of her amnesia. Additionally, Dr. Emmett's advocating for Sam's trial warrants increased funding in his department from the board. Sam is an excellent candidate. I have faith in her recovery, he convinced Moses. What Moses didn't know was that the medical professionals hardly rely on faith. They depend on evidence and experience. Of course, what he doesn't know won't hurt him. In the long view, what's a little sacrifice for the sake of science? thought Dr. Emmett. In her medical file, Moses signed his name, permitting Dr. Emmett to begin preliminary testing for, quote, Candidate 49. Months pass since Sam's incident. She's getting better. It's a slow but steady improvement from her initial state. She sits upright on an examination table in Dr. Emmett's office in her own clothes. What Moses claims she used to wear her jeans are a little slack on her, and her blouse falls differently due to her drop in weight. Shocks of short, bristly hair poke out of her head where Dr. Emmett's attaches 
where Dr. Emmett attaches the instruments to her head in order to read her brain activity. The metal plates inside her skull don't bother her anymore, except sometimes Sam swears that she picks up, she's picking up voices on radio frequencies, or radio frequencies. Dr. Emmett dismisses her concerns and pets her head, reassuring her that they aren't real, that they're only in her imagination. After removing the silicone suction cups from Sam's temples, he helps her into a seated position on the examination table. The machine makes a sizzling sound, like radio static, as it powers on. Dr. Emmett takes a seat and lifts one leg over the other, like they taught him in medical school. He presents Sam with a series of flashcards from set number three. He tilts his head down and gazes at her over his glasses with scrutinizing eyes. Ready, Sam? Yes, Dr. Emmett. What is this, he asks. A toothbrush, she replies. What is this? I don't know. What is this? A telephone. No, it's a portable vacuum cleaner. I'm sorry. That's all right. What is this? I know this one. Then what is it? A new dance. No, it's the breaststroke. What is this? A recipe. No, it's a clipboard. I'm sorry. This? It's a children's story, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. That's enough for today. Dr. Aaron Emmett puts down the flashcards and picks up his clipboard. He writes, Patient exhibits 50% success rate with identifying flashcard set number three. Considerable improvement from last week. Patient complains of localized itching between left ear and eyebrow. No sign of infection or inflammation around tissue. Prescribe more NSAIDs and will consult with nutritionist in post. Recommend introducing caffeine in small doses with breakfast. Sam? Samantha? Hey there, says Dr. Emmett. Doctor? She says. How do you feel about coffee? How do I feel about it? I don't know. How are you sleeping, Sam? A few hours here and there. It's a little hard to sleep on account of the noises of voices in my head that I hear while I lie down. I've told you, that's just a side effect, a result of the electrical stimulation that we conduct. Don't you remember? I'm sorry. I must have forgotten. Any dreams? He asks. Last night, I was talking to a... To an... I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what it is. It has a kind of like a... I'm, I'm sorry. You are dreaming, aren't you? Yes, I usually hear a lot of talking, mostly repeated things from when I'm awake, like pink, pink ladies, motel six, infidelity, two pumps, mocha, Winchester, ketchup. There's a lot of doubt about whether the electrical, the electrical, electro, electoral college is right for our democracy. Look at me, Sam. A little to the left. No. Here, good. Sam, your memory isn't as compromised as we first thought. 
but your visual perception and ability to identify objects is taking a lot longer to recover. You seem able to discriminate between some obje objects, but not others. I'm still trying to figure that out. Have you been keeping a journal like we asked you? Remember that portable recorder? The red button? I'm sorry. Is that a no? I'm sorry. Same time tomorrow, Sam. Keep up the good work. Thank you, doctor. By the time she arrives home, the sun has already set. Sam thanks her Uber driver and gives him five stars. She likes his smile on his display photo in the app. She wonders if he smiled under his mask when she said goodbye. She heard rustling beside the garbage bins. She tosses a pebble, and a cat-like thing skitters into a bush. It chitters, and Sam guesses it's a raccoon. Ruby hates raccoons. She had a dog named Ruby when she was a girl. Sam follows the path that cuts through the front yard to the door. Music dribbles out of her eldest daughter's window above her. As she opens the door, the aroma of simmering, garlicky red sauce assaults her nose and reminds her of a feeling she can almost place. Upstairs, her children are doing schoolwork behind their computer screens. Her husband, Moses, is in the kitchen making spaghetti. Spaghetti? she asks. It's your favorite, says Moses. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Sorry. How'd your appointment go? Yes, good. Uh, how are you? Email, call, email, call. And the kids? Esther made a straw tower. Tony hasn't gotten out of her pajamas all day. Salad? Caesar and a side of garlic bread. Thought I saw a raccoon outside. Ruby's not going to like that, says Moses. Ruby? Ruby's out back. Ruby? You love Ruby. I love Ruby. Why don't you lie down? All right, I'll lie down, says Sam. Take off your mask, too. Dinner, dinner will be ready in an hour. Sam is recovering from brain trauma. It happened in March when the novel coronavirus was announced and a pandemic was announced a pandemic and the government instituted a total lockdown. One morning, after a month of no work and no leaving the house, she simply forgot who she was. Sam's identity died. Yet her body continued to haunt her home and live her life. She was on autopilot for a few days answering questions like a lousy actor, but everyone was a little blue and Moses thought it would pass. On the day of the incident, Sam stopped responding to her name. She stopped responding to anything. Dr. Emmett explained that this withdrawal was a survival strategy, a way of dealing with the hard to comprehend reality, although Sam's psychic retreat didn't stop there. Something compelled her to dispose of bio, her, biological, her biographical information. Names, dates, short-term memory. She even forgot how to complete some essential bodily functions. There was little tethering her to reality other than the presence of her family and a semblance of a routine. 
On top of a specialized treatment involving stimulating Sam's brain with electrical currents, Dr. Emmett has Sam on a cocktail of pills and a careful diet. Lots of fiber, seeds, protein, fish, red meat, and no sweets. One exception is that Sam is allowed spaghetti because Sam loves spaghetti. It's her favorite. Moses tells her that dinner will be ready in an hour. So Sam goes into her bedroom and lies down on top of her bed, over the covers, still in her shoes and mask. She closes her eyes and counts back from 100, like Dr. Emmett has told her to do in order to rest her mind. She hopes for her mind to be still, to be free of interference. 100. A hundred years ago, the same thing happened. 99. 98, 97, 96, 95, 94, 93, 92, 91, 90, 89, 8, 8, 8, 7, 6, 65, 64, 63, 62, 61, 60, 4, Birdie, Brianna, and Botham Jean, Handicap, History, who is the POTUS's caddy? Discount price, early bird special, soup of the day, Caesar dressing, the palace, Viva Las Vegas, Elvis Presley, died on the john, whistling Dixie, doe, a deer, a female deer, musical Nazis, alt-right, the kids are all right, the United Red States of America, Deep State, QAnon, Kofefe, COVID-19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13th Amendment, Abolish the Police, 10, 9th, and those that are not specifically enumerated shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, wrote James Madison, 1-8th. 8 minutes and 47 seconds, 7, 6, 5th, 4th, 3rd, 2nd, constitutionally protected, 1st, 1. Finally, sleep comes to Sam, and she can't fight it. Her body needs it. The voices arrive, all the same and without warning. She can never tell when the voices in her head transition into the dream speak. It just happens. Now, she's in a world where the rules are shadows and the story moves and scenes. First, she's in her elementary school. The large clock hangs on the wall like a warning. Her teacher's long, flowing, floral dress sways as she moves around the class. There's a faint smell of urine, Elmer's glue, and peanut butter. Her shoes are a little muddy, and she cries. Her mother just bought her these shoes, bright red with a green leaf on the outside and white soles. Sam, you're gonna get it, her classmate says. Sam gets up and runs. She runs through the clock's huge face and into the white hospital where Dr. Emmett sits with his hairy hands and aftershave smell. His nurse comes by and delivers files silently in her rubber clogs. Why are most nurses women under 5'6"? 
The nurse wears a Fitbit pedometer, and boy, does she love counting her steps. Deliver this report to Dr. Emmett. Don't mind if I do. Now Dr. Emmett is putting on gloves and a face mask. What's this? What's this? What's this, Sam? I don't know, doctor, she says. Sam smells detergent, iodine, the sick chemical smell of anesthesia. Moses is just in the other room working out the paperwork, says one nurse, wearing a mask. We're taking you to surgery, ma'am. Your baby's not coming, another tells her. The obstetrician places her heavy hand onto Sam's brow and feels her temperature. We'll be in and out in no time. You've got a stubborn little girl, Samantha. We'll set her straight. Doesn't want to get out of there. She laughs as she puts on a pair of latex gloves. Beatrice, says Sam. Is that with an I-X or an I-C-H-E like Dante, asks the obstetrician. How did you decide on that name? A Catholic nurse asks. I must be dreaming, says Sam. Just count back from a hundred, says someone from behind her. What's this? What's this? What's this, Sam? I don't know, doctor, she says. Dr. Emmett reaches behind her ear and pulls out a quarter. Wouldn't you know it, he says, like her long, dead Bavarian grandfather who pulled the same shtick. This must be what's been causing your illness. The sickness in your mind. Here you go, sport, don't worry. We've all got a screw loose. He presses the quarter into her hand, and she squeezes and opens her hand, but the quarter's nowhere to be found. Oh, jeez, I've already lost it, she thinks. He's gonna kill me. I can't lose Grandpa's guilt. Where's my quarter, sport? I need my change back, he says. The white room turns cold. She's on the playground. A thick layer of frost blankets the dirt field outside the schoolyard like saran wrap. Wool mittens cover her hands, and Sam struggles to reach her nose and wipe away the cold snot. Beatrice, her best friend in seventh grade, is kneeling over, tying her bootlace. Oh, here, those sleigh bells a jingin', ring ting tinglin' too. Her friend sings. Give that song a rest, Sam, she says. Tis the season, I guess, Beatrice laughs. We're almost in eighth grade, Bea. When are you going to grow up? What's wrong? Sorry, Bea. I don't know what's come over me. It's just bitter outside. I feel like going in. You can't go back inside, says Beatrice. How come? Sam says. She's with her parents now. Nine years old and on a hill in Wisconsin sometime in January. See those lights? Uh-huh. That's Chicago. Don't lie to the girl, Fred. Just having some fun. Got your toboggan? Asks Mom. Mind the pines, dear. Keep your ears open to hear the crunching snow, just like a great big slushy margarita. Ruby, Ruby, get away from the garbage. Don't let that mutt chase the raccoons, shouts her father. Last one down's a rotten egg. The sun's glare on the fresh snow is blinding. Darker shades of white sat under trees like traps in safe hiding places. Sam bent down on her knees, her jeans already soaking wet. She smelled ice and tasted some blood from her chapped lips. 
the TV static around a sound of sliding down the snowy hill <sighs> filled her head. She closed her eyes. When she opened them again, she saw the roof of her parents' old Skoda. Her father scans the radio in his car. Sam is beside him in the front seat. She gurgles and twitches in her mother's lap on her way home from the hospital. A newborn. She's such a little thing, Fred. Uh-huh, says her dad, smiling under a bristly mustache. Our little Samantha. Nurse said the game's in overtime. Might still be able to catch it. Static. But if we examine the animal's tracks, static. Expect a few inches of precipitation, static. Last Christmas I gave you static. Before jumping to any conclusions about the administration's foreign policies, static. All the Dow's expected to fall two index points by the end of static. An unprecedented event, a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, they've landed on static. Manson stands before the court static. Jello brand gelatin. If it was there, you'd eat it static. Stop. In the name of static. From the 30-yard line brought to you by Michelin. Got it, says the father. Look at her, dear. She's such a little thing. Sam sees her mother's face. Both the toasted scent of tobacco and cracked leather seats leave marks in her olfactory nerves. Her father's silver watch band jingles on his right hand over the steering wheel as he cruises and listens to the last play of the game. Her mother smells like warm milk and industrial laundry detergent. I want to know what happened, Sam tells her parents. How did I get in this car? Why am I a baby? But her parents hear her crying. Sam cries until she's fed at home. Then she chokes and cries some more. She has the colic, and her mother takes Sam to the pediatrician who burps her for an hour. Bussy, bussy, baby, says the Polish doctor. But no tears. It's all vocal. Sam turns over in her bed, back to her house where Moses is downstairs stirring the garlicky marinara sauce. She fusses with her mask and finally removes it. Then she feels a hand on her. Esther, her ten-year-old, is petting her hair. Mommy? Hi, dear. Are you hurt, Mom? No. You were crying like a cat. Like, ow! I'm sorry. It's okay. Can you read me a story tonight? Which story? Thea and the Eleven Elves, Esther says with a huge smile. I don't know that one, says Sam. I'll tell you about it. It's about an elf called Thea who lives with her brothers and sisters in the North Pole. One night, there's a blizzard. Whoosh! Crash! And the branches break the trees. It's stronger than anything you've ever seen before. And the wind howls like a wolf. Oh! And the snow shakes the shutters off their, of their home and seals them inside. Uh-oh, we're stuck inside till spring, says Thea the elf. Luckily, they have enough gingerbread and milk to last them through the winter. Thea is always prepared and made sure that they had enough food. She has big ears and has special and a special mystery machine. Did you know that she can hear what people are thinking? Anyway, Roberta, Thea's older sister, 
falls in love with a yeti monster. She lets him inside, and he eats all the gingerbread and drinks all the milk. So, the elves are all angry, even Thea, but the yeti monster is too scary. Esther lets out a great roar. Sam withdraws and puts her hands over her face. Esther thinks she's playing the part, but Sam's reaction is real. She doesn't know what a yeti is, but she doesn't like it. I'm hungry, says Esther, and laughs, suddenly distracted. Let's eat. Tony, her 18-year-old, knew her mother was going through something, but didn't know she was sick. She noticed the unwashed dishes pile up in the sink one evening before the incident. The fridge grew emptier by the day, and the house had a unique fragrance of forgetfulness to it. Sharp like cheese. Her dad said not to worry. They were all quite reticent. Dinners were eaten in silence around the TV. Most meals were microwaved or were cereal. One night, Moses tried making lasagna but burnt it to a crisp. The smell of char still lurks in the kitchen like an omen. Tony once mistook a can of cat food for tuna and only realized one bite into her sandwich. Esther's fingers were grimy from playing in the garden with Ruby all day, but no one forced her to bathe. Sam's hair was matted and flat, but no one noticed. One, one grows a degree blind in confinement. Sam once called for Tony by voicing only the O in her name. Her mother left her iPhone in the fridge beside the jello pudding. Looking back, Tony's relieved that her mother didn't get behind the wheel. That would have been catastrophic. She might not have found her way home. Tony knew there was something wrong with her mother and still doesn't know what it is. Let's eat, y'all, says Moses. Tony, Esther, and Moses, and Sam take their seats at the table. Dr. Emmett called for Moses to serve spaghetti dinners once a week as a part of Sam's recovery. He and his daughters tremble in their seats for, a first, for the first few minutes every night, praying that Sam won't have a repeat of her breakdown. Sam, however, is oblivious to their anxiety. She only sees noodles in red sauce, looking oddly cerebral in the porcelain bowl before her. While they eat, she considers the state of her own noodle, her brain, and whether her acumen will ever be as sharp as it once was. She digs her fork into the spaghetti. Her family does the same. However, they also observe Sam for any irregularities. Tony is in her head tonight, replaying the night when her mother was no longer her mother. We call the ambulance during dinner. Mom's face is flat. Her chin flaps up and down like she's chewing on something. I think she's having a stroke. She doesn't meet my eyes. Her gaze is blank. She beats the kitchen table with her fists softly, then harder. Spaghetti, spaghetti, spaghetti. Sam wants spaghetti, she says. She cries and screams and frightens us. I take Esther into her room and give her my iPad. Dad drives her down to the hospital. I wait all night for news that doesn't come. I cry so hard I vomit. Nothing makes any sense. Not the pandemic, not mom, not school, not anything. 
Esther falls asleep in front of the TV watching Paw Patrol. I would never let her do that under normal circumstances. I stroke her hair and watch TikTok videos while she rests until the sun rises. I swipe through thousands of homemade videos, spamming my brain with nothing in particular in order to scramble my thoughts and get me through the night. The raccoons outside are edited again until dawn, digging around, teasing sleepy Ruby, taunting her with chittering from high atop the telephone pole. Dad finally shows up at seven and explains what happened. She's going to be all right. They've got her in the ICU. This one doctor, Dr. He reads the note that was left for him. Dr. Emmett, he says that she suffered some sort of episode. He explained it like a power out in her head. She might not remember much when she wakes up. Dad looks at me, hoping that I've understood the diagnosis better than he has. It's Greek to him. His jaw is clenched and his eyes are black. I nod, offering strength. A few days later, after they move Mom into a regular room, he gets a call from Dr. Emmett. I stand, I stand beside him, hold his hand, and listen in. You're telling me that she's, he continues to read, disassociated from herself? Depersonalization? Derealization? What's the difference? Okay, okay, doctor. What does that mean? I asked him after he hangs up. It means that she isn't herself anymore. Can we get her back? Dr. Emmett believes so. Esther thinks about the night a few months ago when her father took Sam to the hospital. Ruby is a bad girl. She ate the apples off my plate and linked it clean of all the peanut butter. All of it. Bad Ruby. Dad said no hitting Ruby. Mom didn't say anything. She was napping on the couch. She's been having headaches. That's why she can't read the eleven elves to me at bedtime anymore. I hugged Mom today, and the clothes and her clothes were smelly and flat. Mom didn't give me a bath this week. I don't like baths, and I don't like brushing my teeth. Yuck. But Dad makes me brush my teeth. Yesterday we were brushing our teeth together, and he found some mud in my hair. Yuck, he said. P-U. And he said, and I thought he was going to give me a... Uh, give me a bath, but he only got mad at mom. I still have mud in my hair, and I don't want to tell Tony because she'll get mad at me. Sometimes Ruby gets muddy, and Tony sprays her with the hose. I don't want to get sprayed by a hose. No, sir. Dad made spaghetti today. Yummy, but I spilled some red on my dress, and Dad got mad. And then mom got sick. So I hid my dress under my bed. Mom and Dad went to the doctor, and Tony gave me fish fingers, but they were cold in the middle. Then I watched Paw Patrol all night. Dad came home in the morning, but Mom didn't. Tony's girlfriend doesn't stop by anymore, but she used to. She took it personally when Fiona explained why she had to stop coming by. I told Fiona to come over the night after my parents were at the hospital. It's a little complicated with Fiona. I tell her I have to see her. She comes around the back like always. Ruby doesn't bark at Fiona anymore. I saw her by the fence, rubbing Ruby's belly. She's so gentle, 
and her knees poke out of her dress while she bends down. She's a swimmer with long legs like a crane. Ruby doesn't care when I walk over to them. You made it, Tony says, smiling. Your hair's getting long, Fiona says. Is it? Isn't it? I've been thinking about getting bangs. Can we talk? Sure, Fee. Want to come inside? I don't think that's a good idea. What's up? I don't really know. Oh, jeez. Look, Tony, I can't keep coming by whenever you call. You've got to leave your house sometime. But you're the one that agreed to come over. That's not the point. I'm trying to be more independent. Don't you think it's time we both grew up? Grow up? I'm not in a rush to grow up. What are you saying? I can't always be there for you. On every beck and call, Tony, I've got responsibilities. I've got responsibilities too. My mom's sick. I know, Tony, and that sucks. But the world doesn't stop moving. Doesn't stop moving? What are you talking about? The world's pretty much frozen because of this pandemic. Frozen for some of us. I can't afford to stand still right now. I'm still looking for another job since the pool closed. They don't need a lifeguard when no one's allowed to swim. Some of us have to work. All right, if that's what you want. It is what I want. A rustling behind the bushes attracts Ruby's attention, and she leaves the two high schoolers alone. How's your mom anyway? asks Fiona. Yeah, she's fine, stable, still at general. Shit. Is she doing any better? I don't know. She's all right physically. She's just lost in her head. That's what Dad says. They're thinking about taking her to a head shrinker at State College. An expert. I think we could all use one of those. I'm sorry? I'm only joking. Can you visit her? Only Dad can for now. I'm sure she'll be fine. Look, I'm sorry. What I said earlier, I just meant that we're all dealing with our own stuff. It's nearly May and I still haven't heard back from colleges. You're lucky that your parents are both professors at State. I don't feel so lucky right now. Well, don't be ungrateful. I'm not. I don't know what I feel. You sound kind of angry. I'm not. All right. Look, are you coming in? Esther's inside and she'll be happy to see you. No, I should just go. We haven't talked for two weeks, but at least mom's back. I saw Fiona on Instagram saying that she got accepted to college, and I ought to apologize and congratulate her, but maybe later. Esther struggles to understand what happened to her mother, or what a pandemic is. She writes her thoughts down before dinner in a notebook she once used for English class. She doesn't use it as much as she used to. She doesn't use pens and paper anymore. I want to go swimming, but Tony won't take me. I miss the pool and lifeguard Fiona. She taught me how to swim. She's Tony's friend. Tony said the pool is closed, but Liz's mom took Liz to the pool yesterday. That means it's open, right? That means that Tony doesn't want to take me to the pool. I asked mom to take me, but she was sleeping with her eyes open again. 
dad said her brain is tired and needs to sleep, sleep, sleep. But why doesn't she close her eyes and why does she sleep at the kitchen table? Dad gives me skittles when I ask too many questions about mom. Dad gives me sliced apples and cheese, but I like sliced apples and peanut butter like mom would give me. Dad's not a very good mom. And I miss mom. Now she doesn't talk a lot. She used to read me bedtime stories all the time. She doesn't even know the 11 elves. When we watch doctor TV shows or Paw Patrol, she doesn't laugh or say anything. She just sits there and looks scared. I think that sometimes she's asleep, so I poke her in the cheek, even though dad says that that's mean. And she says she's sorry. But why is it bad to poke her when mom is the one that says sorry? It was only a few months ago in October that Sam took Esther and Tony to the Y for her first swimming lessons. Tony's girlfriend Fiona is the lifeguard and agreed to give lessons to Esther. Sam did laps while Esther splashed around in the shallow end of, in a pair of water wings with Fiona. Every once in a while, Tony dove in and challenged her mother to an underwater race of the length of the pool. Sam won every time, leaving Tony treading water in the middle of the pool gliding under the surface below the below the pruny feet and flotation devices sam found silence that stilled her mind and soul it wasn't pure she heard low rumbling and humming of the pump but it calmed her swimming gave her a break from life it was a pause from the hustle and bustle of her banal life since her incident sam tells dr emmett that she can't swim that she's never stepped her toes in more water than a bathtub can hold. She's convinced of that. But, in fact, Sam does a lot of swimming lately, in her mind. She drifts from one memory to another, from one reality to the next, piecing facts and information from her old life like flotsam into a raft. Soon, with the help of Dr. Emmett's machine, she, she will build herself a vessel and won't have to drift alone in the ocean of her mind. Dr. Emmett quizzes Sam using flashcard set number four. Who's this? he asks. That's my daughter. What's her name? I'm sorry, her name? Yes. Is it Fiona? Yes. No, it isn't. That's Tony. Who is this? That's my daughter. What is her name? Is it Ruby? Fiona. No. Tony? No. I'm sorry. That's Esther. She's beautiful. Yes. Who is this? Is this Beatrice? No. That's Tim, the UPS delivery man. Good. Who is this? That's your nurse, Ratchet. Correct. What's my name? Dr. Emmett. Correct. What is my speciality? Neurology. Correct. Why are you here, Sam? Because I had an appointment. Correct. Why are you here? I'm supposed to answer some questions. Correct. What's the purpose of these questions? I don't know. What is the purpose of these questions? Hmm. Indeed. Sam, who is this... This is my husband. What does he do? He's a professor. What does he teach? Comparative world literature. Correct. 
Is his name Phil? No. Is his name Aaron? Yes. No. That's my name. Well, it's something biblical, isn't it? Correct, says Dr. Emmett. Is it Isaac? No. Moses? Correct. When did you get married? 98. Correct. Sam, why don't you wear your wedding ring? What's that? Wedding ring. Dr. Emmett raises his left hand and points to the gold band around his finger. Wedding. Where is your wedding ring, Sam? I'm sorry. Sam retrieves the scissors from the drawer and brings them to the kitchen table, as she has done countless times before for crafts, but not once for dinner. Esther, Tony, and Moses sit around her, unaware of what she's about to do next. Red sauce dribbles innocently down their chins, and their napkins reveal oily and crimson Rorschach blots. Tony's Diet Coke fizzes. Esther hums her little dinnertime tune. Moses cleans the food off of his silverware between his lips. They all wait for Sam to act. Sam slides her fingers into the scissors holes and buries it into her plate of spaghetti. Ruby barks. She's outside and must have seen a squirrel. Sam stirs a spaghetti and cuts the noodles into pieces. Snip, snip, snip in the wet plate as her family gaze on, immobilized and apprehensive. Sam's vacant face betrays no self-awareness of this performance. After she has reduced every single noodle to a rice grain size, she puts her scissors down on the oak table, greasy and tomatoey, and stares at her bowl. At this point, Moses should say something, but Ruby barks again and unsettles him. She's found a raccoon, a critter a lot more distressing than a squirrel. Spaghetti, 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 says Sam. Sam wants spaghetti, she says. Dad, says Esther. Mom, says Tony. Must be a raccoon. Go check on her, Esther, says Moses. You all right, Mom, asks Tony. Ruby's going to get scratched again, says Esther as she slides out of the back door. Mom, look at me, says Tony. They're just protecting their young. I know Ruby doesn't look it, but she's pretty scared of those critters, Moses tells his youngest daughter. Mom, says Tony. Sam, your daughter wants you, says Moses, who's in denial. She's turning purple, says Tony. Tony finally gets her father's attention. Sam, breathe, Sam, says Moses, lunging over to his wife. She's choking, he says. But she hasn't put a morsel in her mouth yet, says Tony. Spit it out, Sam, yells Moses. Ruby barks again and again. Esther races after her. Moses stands behind Sam, throws his arms around her waist and begins squeezing her abdomen in sharp bursts. Sam lets out a few quick sighs of air, her face plum purple. She's not breathing, Tony says. She's not choking, Moses says. Ruby got scratched again, Esther says, walking back into the kitchen. She's followed by a sad yellow lab with a cherry red snout. Moses stops squeezing his wife and lays her on the floor. Her body is slack, like a rag doll. Moses slaps his wife's cheeks a few times. Breathe, Sam, breathe, he begs. No, Ruby, not mom, says Esther. 
A whining ruby climbs onto Sam and begins rubbing her dark, sticky blood all over her face. Bad ruby. Get her out of here, says Moses, beating away the dog. Moses bends his head down and delivers a couple of rescue breaths to Sam. Her face loses its dark purple hue. She's still conscious, despite appearing the contrary. His wife's condition tells him that she's hanging on to life by a thread. I said get the dog out of here, he says. Esther takes Ruby upstairs. But the raccoon scratched her. She needs the vet, cries Esther. Your mother needs to go to the hospital. Tony, help me lift her into the car. Grab her arm. Good. Now get your shoulder under her armpit. Good. Okay, I know she's turning purple again, Esther. I've got the door. See? I've got the keys. Jesus, that's that raccoon again. Three of them. Get out of here. Shoo. Shoo. Okay, I'll open the back door of the car. Climb in, and I'll hand her off to you. Okay? Good. Good job, kiddo. Get her on her side. I'll push her legs in. No, she's not dead. She's in shock. She's conscious. Good. Her neck's straight. That's okay. Now get back inside. No, says Tony. I can't take you or your sister, but you'll need me when you get... Get out of the car right now. Take care of your sister, he orders Tony. Moses starts the engine and speeds down the road towards General. Sam suffocates in the back seat, having forgotten how to breathe. That was a month ago now. A month since lockdown has ended, and it's almost July. But no one really believes that it's July. They're all stuck in March, stuck in time and place. At dinner, Sam sits at the kitchen table, chewing on garlic bread. It's dry, sharp, and scratches the inside of her mouth. It's painful, but unavoidable. Moses sits beside her, and Tony is at the end of the table, writing a new flashcard set for her mother, like Dr. Emmett told her to do. Tony quizzes her mother with a few flashcards from flashcard set number five. What's this? He asks her mother. She asks her mother. A roll of toilet paper. Good. What's this? A police officer. What's this? A polling station. Who is this? I don't know. Don't know or don't remember? I have a guess. I have no idea. That's Grandpa. He's so old. Who's this? That's Dr. Emmett. Why does he want you to practice these flashcards? I don't know, says Sam. Neither do I, answers Moses. I'm sure they're helping, Sam says. Are they? Tony smiles. I feel like they are, Sam replies. Looking at her eldest daughter, she notices something. Your hair is so long, Tony, she says. I know, says Tony, tying it back. I love it. I used to have long hair, too. Sam rubs a new bald patch on the back of her head. Hold still, Mom. You've got, the, you've got a band-aid on your temple. It's tangled in your hair. How's Fiona? Tony looks up. Why? You don't like Fi? Uh, Fee, says Tony. I don't? Well, we don't talk anymore, says Tony. You two were peas in a pod. Esther adores her, too. She taught her how to swim. That's right. Wow, the things you remember. You remember, remember what? 
Esther's swimming lessons at the Y? N no, I'm talking about Fiona. The lifeguard. No, Fiona, you know, you and Fiona? Right, she says she wants more independence, and I think that that means she wants to be alone. We all want to be better, and sometimes that means letting go of parts of ourselves. You're probably right, but it's funny. What's funny? I just always thought Fiona was a hero, you know, like, for being a lifeguard. I guess I, I unconsciously wanted her to save me. Maybe I'm reading too much into things, though. Moses laughed. You'll be a scientist yet. I think it's great that you're following up with Dr. Emmett, says Moses. I never thought neurology would interest me so much, says Tony. Why don't you take Ruby out for a walk? I want to speak to your mother. Alone at the table, Moses places his hand on his wife's shoulder. I have some news, Sam. She nods, pushes her plate aside. It's Dr. Emmett. He says that there's a procedure being done at Stanford, an experimental procedure. He says that it could help you, help you get back to work. Sam takes a sip from her glass of milk. She remembers hating milk. It's a quick procedure, one night in the dormitories, in and out, he says. No, she says. This could be it, Sam. You could get your old life back, Dr. Emmett says that you're responding well to the machine. The electricity seems to be restoring your memory. Just trust him. Have some faith. It's only one night. Do it for the girls. Well, for yourself or for me. I don't think so. And I don't think you understand, she says. Don't you remember how happy you were, Sam? No. Well, what do you remember, he asks. The important things, you know. Right now, it's all I need to know, she explains. But that's not everything. That's not who you were. You were someone else before this happened. Sam takes her plate into the sink. She dries her hands on a rag and says, I don't need to remember everything. What? Maybe I'm someone else now. Maybe I'm supposed to forget. Then she turns to him and tells him the truth. Maybe I died. Moses stands up and embraces Sam. I don't know. Maybe you did, he says. What if you can't get me back? What if the Sam that you knew is dead? She rubs his back and sees Tony and Esther through the glass door playing tag with Ruby in the backyard. Ruby doesn't know about the pandemic. Ruby will always just be Ruby. And when she dies, Sam's family will remember her as Ruby, who was afraid of raccoons. However, Sam would never be the same again. And her family will grieve her when Dr. Emmett installs the synaptic reader dongle into Sam's temporal lobe. But in the end, Sam is right. Sam is dead. Neither science nor sheer will will bring Sam back to the world of the living. Thank you for listening.